Hello, and welcome to episode 166 of the Dive Down Magic the Gathering podcast, focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Dave here in Chicago. And as you can hear, there's no stand this week, at least for, not for right now. There's no Shane this week. He's on vacation. But do I, who I do have joining us this week, fresh off a trip to the beautiful crossroads of America, is Dr. Michael Rapp, board-certified shadow scientist, joining us after competing in the SCG Con main event this weekend. Michael, what did you play this weekend in, in Indianapolis? I played the modern seat, and I played Grixis Shadow. What a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you know Michael, you know that his... Uh, he's done extensive work on brewing, tweaking, and playing with Death Shadow in Modern. We wanted to bring him on this week to talk about the future of that deck in the format and the future of the format through the lens of one of the decks that's always there and, of course, recently contributed to the banning of Luris. So we're going to go deep on Death Shadow this week and dig a little deeper into an article he just wrote for Card Kingdom last week titled... The rumors of Death Shadow's demise have greatly exaggerated. So check that out on Card Kingdom's blog if you have a second. But before that, we will break down the results of this weekend's SG Con in Indianapolis, which was a team, modern, pioneer, and legacy tournament. So before we get into that, let's do a little bit of housekeeping. It's everybody's favorite part. Uh, for new patrons, we wanted to thank Steve Bobivo for um, joining us in the patron uh, Patreon. And for increased tiers, we had Aaron C., who joined us at an increased tier this week. Thank you very much for your support. And if you'd like to support The Dive Down, you can find us on patreon.com slash thedivedown, where as little as a dollar a week will get you access to our definitively discreet Dive Down Discord server. You can come and talk to us, come and talk to the members of the community, and uh, kind of go from there where we're constantly talking about tournaments and uh, everything you can imagine under the sun for Magic. And then if you'd like to support the Dive Down while playing Magic, check us out on Manatraders.com. We've talked about it a million times over the years. You know, we've been using Manatraders for three plus years. If you want to check it out, you can sign up using code the Dive Down 2022 to get 15% off of your first two months of Manatraders card rental service on Magic Online, manatraders.com. So with all that stuff out of the way, Michael, let's talk about Indianapolis. Sure thing. So you you went there this weekend. Who who was on your team? Uh so my team was I usually actually have a pretty static team. Uh our legacy player is usually Tom Kessler. Um he won one of the Leaving Legacy Opens, I think two back, something like that. And our Pioneer player is usually Zach Turgeon, who is oddly enough known for Legacy Moonstompy. But he wasn't with us this time, uh, so we had my buddy Marcus, and he played Jeskai Ascendancy, and Tom played 8-cast. Eight 8-cast. Eight In Legacy, what, what? so I'm not super familiar with Legacy. Let's talk. So I'm familiar with Jeskai Ascendancy. That's the deck that you know people have, I think, somewhat tapped as like a little bit of a boogeyman that's maybe on its way to being super good and annoying in Pioneer. It's kind of, I think, um, certainly we have occasional people who kind of go off in our Pioneer channel on our Discord server about how broken that deck is, but also, you know, sometimes pretty disruptible as well. Since we're talking about Pioneer for a second, are, do you, have you played a lot of Pioneer, or do you pretty much stick to, to modern these days? Uh, I've actually been having a lot of fun with Pioneer. I played some of the Black-Red mid-range decks be it the bigger versions with like Chandra Torture Defiance or Graveyard Trespasser, uh, as well as the Black Red Blood decks before Luris got banned. But I've actually recently been having a lot of fun with Jun Sacrifice. 
Oh, no kidding. Those are definitely decks that I've been wanting to look at in Pioneer 2. We're kind of dipping our toes back into Pioneer in the past six months or so, especially after Historic. We, we were covering Historic for a while, and then Historic kind of got bad over the last year, <laughs> honestly. And so people started saying, hey, Pioneer's great. Pioneer's you know, really good formats. And so I, I've been having fun with it here and there, but that's awesome to hear. Which, How did you guys end up on the Jeskai uh, deck instead of something that's more kind of mid-rangey? Was it just player preference, or wh- how did you guys circle on that one? Uh, Marcus is, like, pretty solidly a uh, combo-biased player. Mm. Um, so he was going between Jeskai Ascendancy and Lotus Field, uh, and he thought that Jeskai Ascendancy would be a little bit better against uh, the creature decks that he thought was going to show up. All right. That makes a ton of sense. And then you said that Tom was on 8-cast in Legacy. What does what does that deck list look like? I don't, I'm not even sure I'm familiar enough with Legacy to know that one by the name. So it's actually the Kappa Cannoneer deck. Oh, right. Okay. Or, you know, Blastoise, as people call it. Um, but it's your, like, Emery, Psy, Urza's Saga, Kappa Cannoneer. Uh, and then you have, like, Forethought Monitor, Forethought Cast uh, to kind of just keep the cards coming. And then you well, have so it is of- the same as Modern. As, not the same as Modern, but a similar idea to the deck that's called A-Cast in Modern as well, I didn't realize. Yeah, and then you have a bunch of zeros like Mox, Sopal, uh, Urza's Bobble, Mishra's Bobble, uh, Lotus Petal to kind of keep all of those things going to make sure all of your affinity cards are cheap and make sure you're getting enough tokens from Psy and putting enough counters on Kappa Cannoneer. Um, so I saw that you guys had a pretty good run. What was the what was the weekend like for for your team? Kind of um, kind of day as it started out. I, I know that you guys started out three zero, which is awesome. Kind of what, where did it go from there? Um, so we were three zero, and then we lost a close round four to go to three one. Uh, one round five, lost round six, and then won seven and eight to make day two uh, at six and two. Congrats, by the way. I, I know that I know that you're shooting for something higher than that, but day two, I think, is still an awesome thing to do. Yeah, yeah. No, it was a it was a good feeling to make day two for sure. And then in day two, we had a really rough go of things in day two. I think we went two and three in day two. Oh, yeah. Things just like didn't really break our way. Couple of uh, rough matchups on multiple ends of the table to be honest um yeah but all in all like i had a i had a blast like team magic is so much better than individual magic uh because magic is great and friends are great and getting to play magic with your friends is great yeah i've only done um team sealed before in a in a tournament and i've never done team constructed but team it's so great to be able to just lean over to someone and be like hey this is the situation I'm in. Can we talk about it quickly or to be able to talk with someone about sideboarding in between games or to be able to just kind of like be with the same people all afternoon? Because that is one thing, like you said, about about paper magic tournaments or just magic tournaments in, in general is that if you get really deep into a, a big tournament like that, round six, round seven, it can start to feel kind of kind of isolated, you know, where you're just kind of like, okay, well, I'm just kind of making it through the day, but I haven't seen my friends in a couple hours. I don't know where they are, but it's awesome to be with the same people all day. Um, what, what place did you guys end up finishing though? I mean, you still went eight and five, it sounds like, which is, did you guys not finish, decide not to, to complete all the rounds or? Oh, uh, no, actually there was only 13 rounds. Uh, oh, okay. Which I also thought was weird because team tournaments that I've played in the past, you know, team Grand Prix or whatever, have always had 14 rounds. So we, I was a little surprised by that. Yeah, I think we finished eight and five. Uh, I think we finished in 25th place, which all in all isn't, isn't the worst. Um, but Going into day two in the position that we were in, um, you know, hoping hoping for a little bit better. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, maybe next time for sure. I don't know if there's any more team constructed tournaments coming up for SCG, but I know that there's some other paper ones coming up soon. Are you are you thinking about going to Dallas at all? I know we chatted about it a little bit on Twitter, but I'm still considering it. I'm not a hundred percent sold on it. I know I'm going to Pittsburgh, uh, which is team sealed at the end of April, I think. I think it's the last week of April. Well, if you do make it, I hope I get to meet you in person for the for the first time after we've done a couple episodes <laughs> yeah. together. I know that you were on our compilation episode about Vegas as well, so that would be awesome for sure. And just a reminder to everybody listening, um, Shane and I are definitely going to be in in Dallas, you know, all, all things considered, we have our arrangement set up and everything. So if you want to hang out when you're in Dallas, let us know. Send us a, a tweet at the, the Dive Downs uh, Twitter, and we can meet up sometime. So let, why don't we talk a little bit about the top six, and then maybe we can talk about the way that the metagame looked, at least in, in modern, as we go from there. So first place was Clay Spicklemeyer, uh, Andrew Ellenbogen, and Max McVitie on Is It Delver, Four Color Yorian, and Five Color Humans. What do, you, what do you think of these three lists as far as choices within the metagame go? Of course, they won, so, um, but these all seemed like pretty somewhat expected lists to me for the different um, different formats, although I'm not as familiar with five-color humans in Pioneer. I'm certainly familiar with most of the cards that are in humans from the modern version, and those decks are starting to converge a little bit to me. Yeah, so I think Legacy Delver is kind of the baseline. It is like the de facto best deck, um, so I think a lot of high-level players, especially if they are you know, tempo or mid-range leaning, um, are going to show up with that deck. Uh, four color Yorion, especially after the Warriors ban, also probably the best deck. Um, tons of de- tons of decision points. So again, I think a deck that um, more high level players are going to pick up and do well with. Uh, the only thing that strikes me as odd here is five color humans uh, coming into this tournament. I didn't I didn't expect it at all. I know Max leans on the aggressive side of things. So it makes sense that this is a deck that he would show up with. Uh, but, you know, he seemed to do well with it and it uh, worked out for them. Yeah. So since people aren't as familiar with this, I'm just going to talk about the deck list on the five color humans really quickly. So it, it does have a lot of the cards that you would expect to be in here from modern, although we're missing kind of like the, the powerful one drops that were in the modern list before. So obviously there's nothing like noble hierarch and pioneer. So this deck has experimental experiment one and Thraben inspector experiment. One is a pretty interesting card. That was a absolute house in the draft format from that back in the day i remember and also pretty good in construct in standard at the time as well you know it's the one one that has evolve and uh so it's a one one for one and it gets bigger whenever bigger creature comes into play and then we, you can remove two one plus one plus one counters from it to regenerate it which is pretty good and then thraven inspector of course it's a one two it's a body that can be pumped by thalia's lieutenant and makes clue token so you can draw a card then the two drops are werewolf pack leader thalia garden guardian of thraven and Thalia's Lieutenant, and then a two of Kaltita Dawnheart Prime, which is a 1-1 from Midnight Hunt. It has an activated ability that says, human creatures you control have tap, add one mana of any of this creature's colors. And then it has another activated ability that's a six mana value and tap to put a plus one, plus one counter on each creature you control. So it's another pump effect for your team. And then, of course, the three drops that we're familiar with, mostly from modern you know, at this point in different eras in humans, there's Reflector Mage, Mantis Rider, a couple of General Kudro of Dranith, and a couple of Adeline 
Resplendent, Cathar, and then the whole deck is topped off by Collected Company. So I think that the, the creatures all make a ton of sense in this particular deck, but it is surprising to me how close it's getting to a lot of the same cards that we saw in, in Modern for a long time. The big difference here for me is the addition of Secluded Courtyard to be able to... Um, you know, use it for an activated ability or any color. It is that addition of the uh, the second five color humans, you know, creature land that I think has helped helps make a mana base like this a lot easier to construct. Yeah, they have eight rainbow lands now with uh, unclaimed territory, secluded courtyard, and mana confluence, which certainly is going to help them cast their spells, especially when you have like a double green two drop and a white one dr- or two drop uh into like a three color three drop or a double white three drop uh th- those mana requirements are pretty taxing uh so having eight instead of or having 11 instead of eight rainbow lands is going to help that deck actually be able to cast its spells which was always the the biggest problem with it Yep, absolutely. Okay, so they won the they won the event, so congrats to them. In second place, we had Calmaran on Jeskai Control slash Jeskai Days. We'll talk about that deck in a minute. Uh, Kevin Thanikit on Blue White Hammer and Jeffrey Silver on Phoenix. So in the modern Pioneer seats, I think that these are t- kind of two other pretty well-established decks within the meta. I think Phoenix, I, a lot of people, I think, probably think is the best deck in Pioneer right now. So I don't know if we need to dive too deeply into that. Were you ever a Phoenix person? Or were you a person that hated Phoenix when it was in Modern and, and in Pioneer as well? Um, I went back and forth on Phoenix and Modern. I played it a little bit, but at that time, I was still still pretty big on Shadow. I, that was like right as I was starting to find a lot of success with Shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't play a ton of Phoenix while it was around, but I do generally like that style of deck. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny how close the spell suite is to what you're trying to do with a deck like Shadow sometimes, right? With, you know, certain incarnations of it where you have your cantrips and you have a lot of spells, you're kind of trying to chain things together. Different payoffs, but um, kind of sometimes a similar play style for sure. Tempo-ish, right? Yeah, I mean, I think what I like about both decks is they have a lot of action economy. Um, You're doing a lot of things, which if you can do enough things, it doesn't particularly matter how powerful they are because you just get more done than your opponent yep that's something that stan and i have talked about a lot over the last couple of years which is just like trying to find decks where you do more things than your opponent can make you you know feel like you're having better outcomes and you know often often does um the jeskai days deck so again i'm gonna pick your brain a little bit here because i'm not super familiar with legacy but stan actually mentioned this deck on our episode last week because we were talking about uh, Days Undoing in a different context. And he said that it was a legit control packet, part of a control package in Legacy. And I was kind of like, you got to be kidding me. And then I know there's two different players who took this deck to to the top six here. Had, did you have to play against this deck at all this weekend? Is this a kind of recent addition to Legacy or is this something that's been around for a minute? Um, so I don't particularly remember if we played against this deck this weekend, maybe once. Uh, but I know this deck popped up, uh, like a month and a half, two months ago. I think it won a moto challenge or a moto PTQ of some kind. Um, and it's always kind of just stuck around ever since. And after the banning of Ragavan, it seems to be getting more popular. So if you, if you're not familiar with this list listeners, um, it has the combo that people have tried out in modern a few times with Narset Parter of Veils and Days of Undoing in the deck where you basically, make someone discard their 
their hand and not be able to draw any more cards. And then you draw a fresh seven, essentially, which is pretty interesting. And then outside of that, it's kind of what you would imagine a blue-white control shell might be. It's got force of will, force of negation, brainstorm, ponder. It even has dress down. It has prismatic ending, swords of plowshares, and then you have wandering emperor into fairy time raveler as other kind of planeswalkers within the deck. It's basically a planeswalker control kind of shell with that days undoing combo. Um, in third place, we had James Wagner on Turtle Affinity, uh, Martin Camo, Boros Burn, Andrew Sparger on Mono Red Aggro. And then in the other third, fourth place team, we had David Lance on Yorian Taxes and Legacy, which I was also surprised to see that Yorian was making a splash in Legacy as well. Modern, uh, we had Josh Shields on Blue White, Urza Thopter with Moonsnare uh, prototype, which is a pretty interesting card. And then on the Pioneer seat with this team, we had Eamon Abadi on Lotus Breach. Any thoughts about any of the deck selections here? Um, I think Lotus Breach is like totally reasonable. It keeps doing well online, but it hasn't translated. They haven't been paper Pioneer tournaments, right. really, of any actual size. So this is kind of like its breakout tournament in paper, I think. Uh, and given the results it's putting up online, I'm not surprised to see it here. I think that uh, something we'll probably touch on a little bit later. I think that uh, one of the best up-and-coming decks in Pioneer right now is Blue-White Control. Uh, and I think Hidden Strings actually has a probably a positive Blue-White Control matchup. But it requires the Hidden Strings player to really know what's going on in the matchup. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, if you're somebody that is in the position to top for a tournament of this size, you probably know. Why Why does Hidden Strings... So Hidden Strings is the cipher card that lets you tap or untap a target permanent, then you may tap or untap another target permanent. Why do, Why does this have a, a positive matchup? Is it just that Lotus has a positive matchup against Blue-White, or is it this card helps with that, that matchup for some reason that I'm kind of missing? So I guess the key difference between Lotus Breach and something like Jeskai Ascendancy is... The blue control deck can't interact with Lotus Field, the card, which is your engine, mm-hmm. but they can interact with Jeskai Ascendancy uh, right. via counter spells and now March of the Otherworldly Light. Uh, right. So they kind of have multiple main deck disenchants, which is not great for them. Uh, but Lotus Breach is very good at seeing its entire deck, and it has two Fae of Wishes and a Masterminds acquisition to like go get things from the sideboard, and it has Balagad Recovery to help beat counter spells. So they, the blue eye decks actually kind of have a lot of trouble if the Lotus Field deck gets to, you know, six mana or nine mana or whatever and can wish for something like Thought Distortion. Yeah, brutal. Yeah. So once you can kind of set that up, then it's very easy to win from whatever spot that you end up in. Uh, and you don't particularly care if they counter like your hidden strings or whatever, but you definitely care if they counter like your Jeskai Ascendancy. Right. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Interesting. Um, Lotus Breach, it's funny, it's a, I, it's one of the only combo decks like, you know, this style of, I don't want to say non-uninteractive un- combo, but, it, you know, like big mana combo decks that I actually have because I bought the pre-con and like have it ready to upgrade <laughs> in case I ever play Pioneer because it was such a like nice package just be like, okay, there's four Lotus Field in this deck, I'm just going to buy it. So it'll be interesting to see as that, you know, it's been popular in Pioneer for a long time, so it'll be interesting to see what happens if there are more paper Pioneer tournaments on the agenda coming up soon. What do you think about about Urza in modern right now? Speaking of the Josh Shields list that's on this team as well. It's kind of in a weird place to me personally, because with four color being uh, one of the best decks, Urza is particularly vulnerable to both Solitude and Fury. 
Mm-hmm. There's a lot of dress down running around in the format as well, which is good against Urza Saga Constructs, Stoneforge Mystic, Emery, and Urza. I think this will beat up on like the non-blue mid-range decks, but I don't know how good those decks actually are right now. Mm-hmm. You're talking like, when you say non-blue mid-range decks, you're talking like Jund, Rakdos, that kind of, yeah. just kind of normal, what we classically think of as mid-range and modern. And I, I'm actually kind of surprised to not see Solitude in decks like this, because they usually have them. Uh, but this deck is more artifact-focused than I think a lot of these decks tend to be. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool to see Moonsnare prototype in in a top eight. It's, you know, in one of the first tournaments, one of the first paper tournaments after, you know, after Neon Dynasty came out. It's funny to me that, you know, that this deck is not... I guess you have so many more non-creature artifacts in here than you have creatures that you want to run it in such a you know there's four of these and only one spring leaf drum and usually i've seen it closer to being you know two and three or something or even three and three or four and three kind of ratio so you make sure that you're getting that ramp going on earlier um but moonsmare has been a pretty pretty cool card to play around with yeah it also has the nice upside of a spring leaf drum of not being a bad draw on turn five right because it has because of the channel ability yep yep yeah, it's funny. It's really easy to forget about stuff like that in in modern because you you know because the casting cost essentially is so high. You know, it's five to do it, but that's exactly what makes something like that good. Is that it's it gives it some utility late in the game when you actually want to get rid of a, a problematic permanent or something like that. And these Urza decks are rarely short on mana anyway. True. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. And then the last two people to make the top eight, fifth and sixth place. So a uh, friend of the show, Zach Allen, was in the leg, uh, legacy seat on uh, Just Guy Day's list, similar to the one we talked about a moment ago. Ivan Espinoza in the modern seat on Four Color Yorian, and then Drake Sasser on Is It Phoenix and Pioneer. This is one that kind of feels to me like if, if Zach had been playing Delver instead, it would have been like, okay, the, the preeminent decks of each format basically on this on this team together but it also sounds like you said earlier that just guy days deck is getting popular too and of course zach likes playing control so no big surprise there but i think you know these are all solid decks from good players in this this uh fifth slash sixth place seat and then finally uh we had jimmy brandline on is it delver joss feliciano on four color yorian in modern and then jeremiah kilby on blue white control and pioneer why don't we talk about jeremiah's list for a second since we, since we were talking about blue white control a moment ago why do you think this deck has a kind of an up arrow next to it in pioneer right now is it just because of wandering emperor i think wandering emperor did a lot for that deck i think otherworldly march of the otherworldly light did even oh, yeah. more for that deck yeah absolutely uh, and farewell is also here too yep um so they yeah got some it, new stuff it's interesting. March of Otherworldly Light, I feel like people were kind of, you know, in the mo- since we mostly talk about modern on the show, you know, in the modern context, people were kind of like, eh, I don't know if it's good enough to displace Prismatic Ending. And guess what? It turns out people just run both <laughs> in the decks that have space for it in some, can, uh, some combination. And here in Pioneer, you know, having that ability, like you said, to have a main deck um, disenchant that also functions as creature removal, that also functions as artifact removal, if you want, has proven to be huge in modern, of course. And then here in Pioneer, I'm sure it just makes a world of difference to decks like this. And frankly, probably any deck that wants to run white removal of one kind or another. Yeah. Uh, actually, the funny part is we played against this team twice in the tournament. Um, and the the blue-white player uh, very easily beat our Jessica Ascendancy player both times we played them. So... Oh. That kind of highlights uh, how that matchup it goes archetypically um, for me. Wow, 
I, I didn't realize that you could play the same team twice in the Swiss of a um, of a team tournament like this. Is it because you know, the the records just matched up and you kind of had to? Or so honestly, I didn't either. But what happened was after day one, they reset breakers, so that made it so that people could get paired against. Uh, teams they'd already played against and i've seen some discussion on twitter where people are like hey why did this happen like what was this a conscious decision to do this because it brings into account the question of the major concern that i've seen people bring up is tournament integrity um when multiple teams end up playing each other multiple times yeah did that happen to a lot of people i think that somebody said they played the same team three times over the course of the tournament what uh twice in the swiss and then one in the top six oh jeez. So that is, yeah, I think somebody said they played Andrew Ellenbogen's team three times, I think. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it is a lot. Huh. <laughs> yeah, that's very strange. Well, why don't we take a look at this meta list that was shared from MTG Melee as far as the decks that people took a look at in Modern. And then uh, maybe if we have time, I can dig up the one for Pioneer if you want to talk about it for a moment. But what did you think, uh, how did the meta feel to you in the Modern seat while you were playing? I Now, it's kind of a loaded question because I saw you talking on Twitter about the kind of <laughs> strange matchups that you had happen. But how did how did Modern feel to you this weekend? So overall, I think Modern is in a reasonable place. Um, it's kind of sad because I thought even with Luris, Modern was you know among the best that it had felt in a long time. Uh, so banning just Luris felt a little... Uh, haphazard of like a haphazardly decision to me uh, because once you ban Luris, you know, everything flies out of whack. And the fact that either Yorion or Teferi is still legal is kind of confusing to me because it seems like that is a immediately where the metagame goes. Yeah, I will say I, I was kind of, I was a little bit of a Yorian skeptic maybe right after Luris was banned. Not that I don't think the card is good, but that's there would be so much consolidation around the card kind of immediate in the immediate aftermath of Luris being banned. And then last week we looked at every deck in a 5-0 drop and kind of categorized them and talked about everything. And um, I was shocked at how many decks were just people jamming Yorian into humans and into a... T- we saw a Yorian Titan list and we saw all these like weird people just trying to exploit the next most powerful card that's left standing after Luris was gone. Yeah, which I think is either Yorian or Teferi. Yeah, it's to the point where like Hammer Time is playing Teferi now, so like that's how that that to me is a red flag. <laughs> Interesting. And personally, I noticed that you were on. In particular, it sounded like you drew a lot of matchups into Solitude Teferi decks. Is that is that right? Yeah, I played against Blue Eye Control four times. I played against Four Color Yorion four times, and I played against Jeskai Blood Sun twice. Jeskai Blood Sun twice. Right. That's what I said. Oh my gosh. <laughs> So it's kind of funny because my opponents kept revealing Kahiras. Um, I played against Amulet in round one and Burn in round two, and then seven blue-white variants in a row. That's unbelievable. Uh, and at the at one point, I think it was the third match in a row, my opponent had revealed Kahira. I looked at my teammates and I'm like, I, I think I've fallen into some sort of like alternate universe, so please pull on the rope. I need help. Uh, <laughs> and we kept joking that it was going to be Belcher. Yeah. And at one point, in the tournament, my opponent reveals Kahira. I think this is in round 12. Right. And I'm like, is it finally Belcher? I play a Ragavan on the play and pass to them, and they play the whatever the back half of Valakut Exploration or Valakut Stoneforge is. Uh, and I was like, wow, it's finally Belcher. <laughs> and I attack with my Ragavan, and they solitude it. And I was like, this happened again? And you're like, and you're playing Valakut Awakening in your... <laughs> yeah, in your Cryptic Command deck? <laughs> That's unbelievable. So that, that was... 
an interesting experience to play twice in the same tournament for sure. One, one question I have for you, because you mentioned um, you kind of grouped together four color Yorian and blue blue white as kind of all being being blue white variants. Do you essentially think that that like um, the four color Yorian decks are essential? Because I always have a hard time kind of deciding if I think that deck is control or mid range. You know what I mean? Because it's just so good at kind of doing some of the things that it does and like do you feel like that's much more in the control kind of space than it is anywhere else i think it depends on how those decks are built there's some of those decks that are built with like eladomri's call and eternal witness and ragavan and i think those decks are more mid-range leaning but there are some of them that are built with like you know six or seven copies of prismatic ending and march of the otherworldly light and four counter spells and i think those decks are more control leaning yep yeah, it's just kind of shading two different directions of a similar core. But it is still fascinating to me that, you know, I don't want to be the person who says, like, you can buy buy success in Magic. In particular, I think that Four Color Yorin is really hard to play. Like, it's not a deck that I would pick up. But it is fascinating to me that one of the decks at the top of the metagame is literally, like, $1,900 in, in the best cards that are available in Modern in one deck. And it's even, you know, gets to play 80 cards, gets to, quote unquote, because the companion, you know, restriction is that. And so it's just every <laughs> every good card in one one place all at once with all the good lands. Yeah, and that's that's the thing that drives it is, you know, you hear people every now and then talk about how fetch lands are a mistake, um, but they're probably too deeply ingrained into modern to do anything about. Uh, and I think these four color decks really highlight that. And one of the things I was upset about when I saw stuff about New Capenna coming out is that they're fin- finishing the Triome cycle. I know. So you're in camp. You're in camp. Uh, we didn't. We didn't need to finish the Triome cycle. So I'm a little torn because I think that unfinished cycles are bad. Um, I'm still waiting for the Rakdos uh, version of Horizon Canopy. Same. Um, <laughs> I'm hope- I was. I thought those were going to be in Modern Horizons too, honestly, but then they weren't. Yeah. yeah. But I think that. Every time they make it easier to play five-color mana bases without any problem, magic gets a little bit worse. Yeah. Because those decks have these huge power level because of like all the high card quality cards that they have. But traditionally, their hang-up is their mana. Like Sometimes they can't cast their spells. And I think four-color Yorion is like an embodiment of that where not only do they have these very powerful spells, but because they have all the mana fixing to make it work, and, star- and cards like uh, Fury and solitude are free uh they don't even have to worry about their mana requirements nearly as much yeah yeah absolutely all right well let's talk about some of the other decks in modern here so the number one registered deck it looks like to me although you know the mtg melee um labels aren't always the most reliable thing in the world it looks like boros burn was the most registered deck this weekend uh from what i could tell there were 27 decks labeled as boros burn and then six labeled as burn so i'm going to say that was 33 decks that were were registered as boros so are you surprised that that was the most registered deck even in a world where you're expecting a lot of a lot of yorian a lot of um omnath to be floating around so i think that if you expect yorian four color yorian to be good burn is a good place to be uh so that burn showing up in high numbers makes sense to me because I think everyone thought that the clear place to go after the Lurus ban was to one of the Omnath decks. Um, and Burn traditionally has a pretty good matchup against Omnath. Real, that's so counterintuitive to me just because it gains life so frequently. But I guess that the decks, these four color decks kind of, can kind of dirtle a little bit if they're not, you know, they're not, you can sometimes get under them. They are slow enough that you can get under them with burn, I guess. Yeah, and that's the thing is they only have four Omnaths. Um, and it's an 80-card deck, which kind of matters. Uh, you're slightly less likely to find an Omnath than in a 60-card deck. But 
Omnath is still a four mana spell. Uh, Burn can certainly just have you dead by then, or close enough to dead, or have a skull crack for when you try to gain life with Omnath. Yeah, and it really only takes one skull. Like people kind of think a lot of times, oh, if they they're gonna if I have a skull crack against Omnath, then um they're just gonna gain life again the next turn. But often preventing one of those triggers is usually enough for you to be able to kind of close out the game because you're you're preventing four life and you're also doing three more damage to someone in the same at the same time. Yeah, I think that. A lot of the time, if you skull crack the first Omnath trigger, they don't get the opportunity for a second one. Yeah, you said that much better than I did. Um, so from what it looks like to me, it kind of looks like the next most registered deck was Murktide, potentially. Now, I know that the the screenshot list that we have doesn't have that, but there are 16 decks listed as Is It Tempo. There's six decks listed as Is It Aggro. And then there's eight decks listed as, as Is It Midrange. And I, I gotta wonder, are those all Murktide decks, you think? Or do you think that those are different from each other? I saw a couple of Prowess decks floating around. I don't know how many there are. Wow, okay. Um, but I would guess that some of the Izzet Aggro decks are Prowess, and probably most of them are Murktide. Yeah. But yeah, it, I think the clear winners coming out of the Lotus Band were Burn, Four Color Yorion, Murktide, and Amulet. Yep. And look, they are, there they are at the top of the metagame. <laughs> yeah, so it makes sense yep. that we're seeing a lot of those decks come out in pretty high numbers. Yeah. And speaking of, the next deck that is on the list is Amulet Titan. Now, I am starting to hear from people in our Discord, even the people who play Amulet, that they're like, Amulet's just super... They just think that Amulet's maybe the best deck right now. Now, of course, Titan players always think that. But, um, <laughs> you know, where do you, what do you think about that deck right now? You said it was a winner. Why do you think it's a particular winner with uh, after the Lyris ban? I think the Grixis Shadow matchup for Amulet Titan was very bad. Um, so now that deck at least is taking a step back in the short term, um, they don't have to worry nearly as much about things like Dress Down and Unholy Heat. They do have to worry about that out of Murktide, but you don't have Murktide and Shadow doing it. Right. It's a much smaller portion of the metagame. Yeah, exactly. And people keep going at them with Blood Moon, too, and it's just it's a different ballgame now with Boseju. Boseju and Dryad. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Dryad is always like, did they did it happen at the right time? But Boseju is like, okay, we're just gonna win through a turn three moon way more often than you thought we were able to. Yeah, and they're such a good Boseju deck that it doesn't even really cost them anything to be able to have a clean answer to Blood Moon. Absolutely. All right, let's just talk about a couple of last decks on here. So we talked about Yorian already. We think that that's really close to the top of the list. That was probably around 25 decks registered. So that was kind of next on the list. Grixis Shadow was actually fifth, it looks like, here with um, 16 decks registered out of the teams, which is kind of like clearly the next tier down, but it's not that far behind the other decks that were all in the kind of mid, mid-20s to 30 registers. Any other lists surprise you from what you've seen? For me, I guess one thing I would say is not very many people registered Hammer this weekend. I, I still am a little bit surprised by how few people are playing Hammer at this point in time, and maybe maybe it's just it is farther out of step with the meta than I thought. What, what kind of things surprised you from this list or from what you saw? So I actually think that um, there are slightly more four-color Yorion uh, than we think, because I think a lot of those four-color control decks are probably your uh, four-color Yorion decks, putting it at like 31. Yep. But yeah, I, I was surprised that very few people showed up with Hammer. Um, and I think there was less of the Cascade decks than I thought there was going to be. Yeah. The only reason that I... I to go back to the Yorian note, one thing. I did notice that some four-color control decks were actually creativity lists when I was looking through things. So it, that's why I was kind of like, it's maybe not quite as high. But I, either way, one thing is... 
I was surprised to see four, five, maybe six people register creativity right now, which I think is a deck that is a getting more popular, whether it's good or not. I don't know. I've, I've had a lot of trouble. As I've talked about on the show a couple of times, I've had a lot of trouble playing it. But yeah, I thought that was one thing that was interesting too. I, I would, I, now that you mentioned it, I'm really surprised that there wasn't more Living End either because I do think there's a bit of an up arrow next to Living End in particular out of the Cascade decks right now. Yeah, I think Living End was a big, big winner out of the Lurus ban. Um, I think Cascade decks in general are, but I think Living End is the most. Um, those decks also had very rough time against Grixis Shadow. They are just exactly the kind of decks that Shadow wants to play against. Um, and on top of that, I think Living End is very good against four-color Yorion and Amulet Titan. Yep. And actually, Stan, who's just joined us, Who's going to pop in a little bit? Hey, Stan, how are you? Oh, hey, guys. I, I didn't know you were recording tonight. I wish someone had told me. I had to, I had to see the oh, tweet. Oh, yeah, sorry. You know, we were trying to just, you know, have one without you for once, but um, just, try, just trying it out. Um, I, what I was going to say was Stan's been playing Living, Living End a little bit lately and actually f- has found that the matchup against Burn is really good, too, because um, it just tends to not really be fast enough to stop you from what, what you're doing, and it doesn't, it can't interact with kind of the combo at all basically so i do think it's pretty well positioned against a number of the decks that are at the top of the list there what do you think about that matchup michael do you think that there do you have any thoughts about burn versus living end um i think living end is reasonably well set up uh to beat burn especially because they have formed main deck force of negation uh which certainly i think those decks operate on a similar speed uh, because Living End wants to go off on turn three, Burn's trying to kill you somewhere in the realm of like turn three and a half or so. Uh, but I think Force of Negation kind of tilts that um, towards Living End. I think it also helps that you know none of your cantrips are, are dealing Eidolon damage to you, and you can sometimes play your mana slowly enough that you're barely doing any damage off the um, off your mana base. And then the other one, in addition to Force of Negation, the other great free spell is Grief. Where Grief will sometimes just save you for life because you can pick off a borrow storm that is also a good point michael i'm curious about one thing i heard you say as i was coming in is that um gds loved playing against some of these decks is it just because the hand disruption thoughtsies croaks was just like really good at getting rid of combo pieces or was there something else going on that you felt um favored the grixis deck in that matchup so i think in general against the cascade decks especially uh rhinos and living end that get to play main deck force of negation Decks like Murktide have a, a good matchup, but not as good a matchup, because I think that matchup is a lot about turns one to three action economy. So having to hold up actual Counterspell or Archmage's Charm or whatever can really get you bottlenecked going into the, the Living End turn or the Crashing Footfalls turn because of Force of Negation. But being able to deploy early disruption in the form of Inquisition and Thoughtseize and then back it up with Counterspells uh, makes it harder for these cascade decks to defend their combo piece so last thing before we hop over to talk in depth about shadow um just would love to hear a little bit about how you all prepare as a team for a team tournament like what are you thinking you know how do you how do you and your team kind of work out who's going to do what is there a certain kind of is there a certain kind of prep that goes into this tournament that's different than a solo one um there could be for other teams uh for us not particularly uh we my group of friends in my testing team uh all kind of function in a way that we are all working on things together all the time anyway so we'll be in discord you know multiple nights a week and people will just be playing moto leagues and everyone will be watching and like you know providing input about 
you know, plays or deck decisions or how to build a deck. Uh, so we're maybe more aligned with what you would think people do to prepare for team tournaments as a baseline. Uh, so we don't really change a whole lot uh, in that kind of preparation. We do have, you know, slightly more focused conversations about what decks each of us are thinking of playing or what decks we think are good and then how to tune things for an expected metagame. But realistically, if I'm teaming with somebody, I trust them as a player and I trust them as a person. Uh, so whatever they feel they are going to show up with to give, the, to give them the best chance to win, uh, I am okay with whatever they bring. Wow, Stan, I think I just realized what we don't have to make us a successful team in team tournaments. No trust. No trust. No trust, buddy. <laughs> Where have you been? No, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. Well, thank you so much for going through that dive da- that uh, deep dive on indie with us, Michael. We are going to take a little break here, and then we're going to come right back and talk in depth about Shadow where it is, where it's going, where it's been with one of the masters of the archetypes and someone who puts in all the work. So please stay with us. Hello. David. It's me, Stanislav. Stan, I knew it was you. I'm calling you from the shower. Okay. Wow. Yeah. What future are you from where you can have a phone in the shower? You know, uh, my phone is wrapped in cellophane. Mm. So we have talked about this a little bit, but I do have, I did, I do have a hot tub now, <laughs> and I legitimately bought waterproof cases for my phone and my iPad so I can hang out in the hot tub with my phone and iPad. That's yeah, I lied about the cellophane. I'm just using your cases. <laughs> but you know what's great after you have a nice soak in the hot tub, moisturizing with a nice product. Such as, <laughs> such as, such as our wonderful sponsor, Barrister and Man, who we we love and adore, and wanted to talk about a little bit right uh, you now. You know, I think more important than moisturizing is taking a shower to wash off the chlorine and all the other chemicals because your skin does dry out and you smell weird sometimes. I mean, I kind of like the smell of chlorine, but you got to take care of your body. And I've been using a new Barrister and Man soap. Which one have you been using? I've been using a bar. Of Castile soap. You know what? It's funny. I've actually been using it too. I kind of switched it out. Dude, isn't it fantastic? Yes, it is. I've been using like a long, for a long time, I've been using kind of like the no scented, sensitive skin kind of stuff. And um, the bar that I got from Will at Barrister and Man doing the same, the same, same job feels better. Skin feels better afterwards. It's a more kind of pleasant experience than the kind of goopy microbead stuff that I was using before. Dude, like, the fact that it's fragranceless was really important to me, A. And a lot of times, like, I'm in this routine where I've been using the same soap for 20 years. And then I'll, you know, end up at someone's house and I have to take a shower at my friend's house after a barbecue because I'm covered in barbecue sauce. Or, like, I'm at a hotel and I'm using, like, those Barbecue little- sauce. Yeah. <laughs> barbecue <laughs> sauce scented little yeah. sample sizes. And then, like, you feel kind of, like, oily and weird. And, like, your skin is like, why are you doing this to me? The Castile soap. It was just really gentle, didn't have any issues whatsoever. And this was like my first time just using a bar of soap on my body in I don't know how long. I've always just been a, a, a loofah and some dove liquid soap person. And, and it was just like the thing about the Castile soap I really liked is they have it has these like parts and pieces in it, like these little textures that actually make me feel like my body's getting a little bit of like exfoliation along with the the cleaning and the lather. Yep. 
same thing. It's so funny that we were, we use the same same one. Not planned at all. Not planned but at all. If you would like to check out Barrister and Man, do us a favor, check them out and use uh, the code Dive Down the Dive Down twenty twenty two. You can get a discount on your first order. How much is that discount, Sam? It's fifteen percent. Fifteen percent. One five. Amazing. It's so thank good. you so much, Barrister and Man, for your ongoing support. And thank you for letting me use this waterproof phone case for my shower, Dave. I'm going to go clean my body now. You know what? I keep it. All right, everyone. We are back. And, you know, Michael, this is your third appearance, technically. You first did a bonus where Dave vetted you to make sure that you weren't catfishing us on Twitter. Th- <laughs> then, I, then I met you in person in Vegas, and you were part of our Vegas episode, and it was really great chatting with you then. All these times, you come onto the show to talk about Death Shadow. On Twitter, you're known as the Shadow Scientist. You won GP Toronto a few years ago playing Shadow. What is it about Death Shadow and you? We'd love to hear about your relationship with the card the archetype and really where it all started and, and how you got to where you are today, a three-time dive down guest. Um, so first things first, uh, thank you so much for having me back and on previously. Um, it's been great to talk to you guys and everybody else. You're far too kind. <laughs> thank um, you for coming on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no problem at all. Uh, so I've been playing shadow for probably the better part of the last five years. Um, I kind of picked it up in 2018, 2017-ish, when it was getting really big. Uh, what attracted me to that deck was I've always been kind of a tempo player, uh, mid-range tempo, and I think Shadow fits into that mold very well. But I think that you just have these... Originally with Kermag Angler and Stubborn Denial, you had these play patterns that were both efficient and very powerful. Uh, like Turn 2 Kermag Angler with Stubborn Denial backup was very hard for most decks in the format to beat. Uh, so you kind of had the ability to be explosive with those starts, but also grind with Snapcaster Mage and Colgan's Command. So you kind of felt like you had game against everything. Uh, and that that is something that I look for in when I select my decks. I also felt like I was playing a Legacy deck in Modern for a long time because all of your spells are so cheap and you're doing so many things in the early turns of the game compared to your opponents. Uh, so that was another thing that really hooked me uh, when I started playing the deck. And this is that action economy thing you were talking about a little bit earlier that you, you've, and you mentioned it about another deck that we were talking about too. Is that you really feel like that's something that helps you kind of in the way that you think about playing magic? Yeah. Action economy, <clears throat> sorry. Action economy is big, uh, but also agency, uh, is really important. I don't tend to play a lot of decks like Burn, where you kind of just draw your card and play your card. Um, and there's not a How lot of <laughs> <laughs> there's not a lot of deviation from the cards that you draw off the top of your deck, right? Um, obviously, there's nuances to Burn. You know when to hold your cards, how to sequence them, or whatever. But cards that have multiple uses in multiple situations are always more interesting to me. And I think that Shadow tends to have a lot of those cards. Like right now, Drown in the Lock is one of my favorite cards by a a design standpoint because it took two classical like tempo control cards, uh, Counterspell and Terminate, and kind of blended them together in a way that fixes the problem of both of them. You know, Terminate is good when Counterspell isn't. Counterspell is good when Terminate isn't. Yeah. So it's cards like that that really 
uh, draw me in. But also the games are like really interesting because of how you have to manage your life total. Like very few games play out the same way because uh, you uh, you have to like gauge your opponent's level of aggression and you kind of do this dance where like how much can you deal damage to yourself versus how much you have to let your opponent deal damage to you. Uh, and I, I find that really interesting. So you said you've been working on the on the deck. You've been playing the deck basically for five years now. I I will say I don't remember seeing a tweet from you where you've ever played anything else in in modern. Do you do you really play basically shadow all the time? Is there deviations to you? Like how much percentage wise do you think you are playing some version of a shadow deck in in modern? Uh, depends what level of tournament we're talking about. I'll play other stuff at like. You know, my LGS's weekly modern nights or whatever. Um, I'll play Murktide or Jun Saga or, you know, something along those lines. And I try out a bunch of different decks on Moto, you know, playing them through leagues. But if I'm playing in anything that matters, it's probably 90 plus percent Shadow. That's awesome. I mean, it's incredible dedication. And I, I think it, it shows. And I, you know, being someone who's a fan of the deck and I go through different um, eras where I like playing it or I'm like, I'm going to get good at Shadow. I'm going to put the time in now. I But you're always the first person I go to to see what's going on now and to see kind of what you're thinking about in a given metagame or when a new set comes out and, and those kind of things. So I appreciate you kind of putting that effort into sharing that with everybody. And one thing that we're going to talk about a lot this particular episode or refer to a few times is an article you just published on Card Kingdom's blog, which we talked about earlier about, you know, the rumors of Death Shadow's demise being greatly exaggerated. I would really just want to encourage anybody who's listening here to, you know, follow Michael on Twitter, check out his articles on Card Kingdom. You you do write articles about a number of different subjects on there. But um, you know, you're always there with the the latest version of Shadow right after there's a shift in the metagame. And so that that's awesome to see in addition to the other I, was, I have to imagine as well that when Shadow is as popular as it just was at the very least, when you're playing other decks, it's probably also helping you understand the format from other perspectives to, un, in some capacity, help improve your Shadow play too and your understanding of Shadow in various matchups. Yeah, I think it is important to play both sides of a matchup to effectively learn the matchup. Um, so if I just like literally only played Shadow all the time, I would only kind of I would never pick up on nuances that my opponent might be thinking about, and I would probably often fall into my own heuristics, which may not always be correct about the matchup. So playing it from both sides kind of helps weed those things out, which is certainly productive. Awesome. So let's talk about what just was. I I did, since I haven't talked to you in a little bit, I would love to hear a little bit about what you thought about the Luris era of Shadow kind of all in. Like, Every deck, a lot of decks got really powerful from Luris or had powerful game plans kind of grafted onto the side of them. How do you think this latest version of Shadow, which a lot of people thought was the best deck in the format towards the end of that Luris modern, how do you think that compared to um, to other eras of Shadow? And and why do you think Shadow maybe used Luris better than other decks did? Two separate questions, I guess. Okay, um, so I think that if you're looking for a comparison on the power level of Lurus Shadow given to previous Shadow decks, I think it is roughly around the 2018-ish era um, where Shadow... That, that was the other time where Shadow is very close to, if not the best deck in the format. Yeah, you mean when LSV was calling for Shadow to be banned? Yeah. Is that yeah, when that exactly. was in 2018? Um, I think that the Lurus version is probably on a similar power level to that relative to the rest of the format. I think the Luris version is better than that deck in a vacuum, uh, just because so many good cards have been printed in the last five years. Yeah, absolutely. But to follow up on the second question, 
what yeah the, the, i was i was asking so how what do you think was so what why was shadow so good at leveraging luris in a way that that other de- i mean other de- lots of decks used it but what was so good about the way that that uh shadow used it luris added a second dimension to the shadow deck um which is why it was, was so good the shadow core is very good at playing an aggressively slanted tempo style game but luris allowed you to take the control role in a number of matchups uh, specifically hammer time uh, because Lurus would let you just loop things like Dress Down and Engineer Explosives, uh, and you could play things really slowly because Lurus gave you that inevitability engine that a lot of those decks couldn't beat. Death Shadow, I think, was the most impacted deck losing Lurus mm-hmm. because Lurus gave you a lot of resilience at a very low cost. So right. now, I think where Shadow is post Lurus is the deck needs to answer a question, and it is how do we compensate for losing that kind of resilience uh and i think the answers are you either have to go faster or find a go way to go bigger i don't know that shadow can get a whole lot faster at the moment especially not grixis i think that you could build a jun shadow deck that can go very fast with um like become a Mensa team or battle rage i don't think that deck can ever beat solitude um so <laughs> that's that's kind of a point against that deck and a large point given <laughs> how things looked this weekend yeah absolutely um so that led me into trying to figure out how to go bigger and shadow does not excel very well at going bigger because it needs all of its cards to be so efficient and so cheap to get away with being able to play as few lands as it does yeah yeah i mean that's awesome i love that idea of it has to adapt and the two ways that it can adapt is faster or bigger do you agree with the premise though that pre-ban shadow was the best deck in the format it, it felt like the discourse was often going back between shadow and hammer and sometimes Merktide, even amulet occasionally i think in my opinion the three best decks before the Lurus ban were four color hammer and shadow and i think you could make a strong case for any of them i don't think that any of them were empirically better than the rest of them shadow was certainly getting hot as people figured out how to build the deck um, there was like very little variation in lists for like the yeah. last three or four weeks before Lurus got banned. Uh, so as the community honed in on finding the, uh, quote, correct version of the deck, uh, the results started to follow. And you saw Shadow putting up, you know, two, three, four top eights on Moto Challenges every weekend. Or, or four, the top four of an entire cha- challenge that was all Grix's Shadow that one time. I think Corey, that was the one that Corey Baumeister was in the top four of. Yep. Yeah, that, that certainly happened. And honestly, I think that was the the nail yeah i think that was the nail for lurus <laughs> yeah yeah i mean even even him i think going on twitter contributed to it and be like hey i i've been loving playing this deck but we can't <laughs> we can't do this anymore was uh was pretty interesting to see and then likewise do you think that lurus w- was kind of the thing that made the shadow decks less exploitable that the meta had kind of gotten into this cycle where it was hammer four color shadow over and over and over and because they had access to such a powerful companion that made both the deck more streamlined and more cheaper, but also more grindy and recursive, as a result of just some of the tools that people used to rely on dealing with the shadow problem, if and when there was one, just weren't as consistent anymore? Yeah, so my <laughs> I may have a kind of a skewed view on the subject of somebody that likes to play removal spells, but I've heard a lot of complaints over the years about Death Shadow. You know, Luis was calling for it to get banned, and I've heard a lot of the similar complaints about Tarmogoyf. At the end of the day, these are just vanilla creatures. Like, if you're losing to vanilla creatures, put a removal spell in your deck. Mm-hmm. Um, or kill them before it matters. 
you know, those are like two totally reasonable ways to go about dealing with things like Death Shadow or Tarmogoy for whatever uh, big body is attacking. So Luris insulated you from that. Um, the the Terminate strategy didn't really work as well because eventually they would just play Luris, pick the Shadow, and then you'd need to find two more removal spells. Right. Um, and getting that at little cost, I'm not going to say no cost because I'm sure there's cards that Shadow may have played um, had they had the opportunity over the course of time. Uh, but none of them were even as close to good as Luris. And we're about to find out what some of those cards people might play without Luris because um, that's the world we're in now, right? And so, like you said, you've been working on getting Luris or getting this post Luris version of Shadow together. You know, clearly, given the number of people that registered it for uh, in Indianapolis, there are enough people who believe that the deck is still good enough to play it's still viable um why don't we talk a little bit about what we saw kind of in the first weekend afterwards so one thing that i wanted to talk about quickly is we had a um a listener before we get into your article michael we had a a listener water cave from our discord who put together a spreadsheet that shows all of the different grixis shadow decks that were registered at the hunter burton memorial open uh two weeks ago now and i thought this was super interesting because it was basically 20 or so people that brought that and water cave charted out a couple of different things that were going on in these different lists and so what kind of emerged was in notable cards that people were trying in grixis death shadow the first kind of list that was the highest was street wraith murktide regent and gigantha and then below that were kind of spicier things like kaido shizuki the royal scions even some Angler and Tassigers, Dark Confidant, Snapcaster Mage. Some of the things that were really interesting here is that 75% of the Grixis Death Shadow decks in that particular event were people trying Street Wraith, kind of an average of around two and a half copies. But that's kind of brought down by the fact that there were five decks that just didn't play it. So most of them were four ofs with a couple three ofs. A couple two ofs even. A couple two ofs, which is even more kind of perplexing yeah. to me. Um People running Kroxa still, of course, and, and mostly as a two-of, but we've definitely seen a lot of people running it as a one-of. And then the biggest surprise to me from this particular first event is that not many people actually... A lot of people played Street Wraith, but not that many people played Murktide, which actually feels like those are the things that we thought were going to go together in this first first version from there. Um, I know you have a lot of thoughts about this. You've done a lot of work with all these different cards right now. I would love to talk for a minute about... Um, you know, I don't want to bring things up too quickly, but why don't we talk about Street Wraith for a second? Because I know it was probably one of the first things on your list to try, Michael. What kind of happened with that card in your mind, and where do you think that's positioned right now? So, as a as a quick overview, um, when Luris got banned, my mind went to three places immediately. Um, they were Street Wraith, Murktide, and Ranger Captain of Eos. Um, and I think that Street Wraith combines with both of the other two at least in theory, very well. Um, Street Wraith, I put into a Mardu version, a Murktide version, and something that resembled the Luris lists without Luris. Yeah, and that's basically, just to say, this is what Michael documented really well in the article on Card Kingdom that we mentioned. And I do think that these are kind of the three main deck lists that we're going to talk about for the rest of the episode, right? We're going to talk about something that's close to the Luris list that we had before. We're going to talk about something that's got Murktide a little bit, and we're going to talk about Mardu Death Shadow a little bit as well. But go ahead, Michael. So to touch specifically on Street Wraith, I'll talk about the I what I ended up calling it was the quotes stock GDS. Uh, because it was just the stock Luris list 
that I shoved some street wraiths in mm-hmm. uh, just to see how that card would perform. And it was not as well as I had hoped. Uh, in short, you don't need to turbo out a Death Shadow anymore because the rest of your deck is more powerful. Um, you don't need to rely on having an early Death Shadow or an early Gurmag Angler to be able to close the game because Ragavan and Dragon's Ridge Chandler do a great job at that anyway. Um, so, so that is one thing I wanted to ask you about. Those threats are such a fundamental change to modern, but also to this list in particular. Do you feel like generally this version of... Um, the world of Grixis Death Shadow that we live in right now, it's a lot more aggressive than it used to be thanks to those one-drops, right? Yes. Yeah. It is more aggressive, less explosive, if that makes sense. Totally totally makes sense, because it's more consistent. That was certainly one thing that I struggled with sometimes playing Death Shadow decks before, where your your main threats were Gurmag, Angler, and, Street, or, and, uh, sorry, and Shadow itself, is trying to really be much more thoughtful and careful about when you're bringing your threats out, because you there are some things that you, you know, like you're not going to play a shadow on turn one, right? But now you have eight cards in your deck that you really do want to play on turn one. And I do think that's a little bit of a change from where Death Shadow was historically. Yeah, so I think Street Wraith was good before um, because the removal in Modern was not nearly as good. So if mm-hmm. you put a Death Shadow on the table on turn two or three, and it was a 3-3 three, three or a 4-4 four, four or a 5-5, five, five, you were like pretty likely to win the game, especially if you had a Stubborn Denial to back it up. Mm-hmm. But that's just not true anymore. Um because of Prismatic Ending and March of the Otherworldly Light and Unholy Heat, it's so much easier to answer a turn two, turn three, five, five. Uh, so you do a lot of work to get your life total down using Street Wraith and Thoughtseize and you know the damage from your lands, and then your opponent just kills it. Uh, and then you're left without pressure and down a bunch of life. Right. Um, so I think <laughs> succinctly the answer to why Street Wraith didn't work out is there are just too many good cards now. <laughs> and you don't need the extra air kind of interesting yeah and it there are too many good cards not only in shadow but in the format at large and, and for that reason playing chicken with your life total is just more of a liability than ever before yeah it's well now it's funny because it used to be more of a sprint than it is now now it's kind of like an obstacle course um because mm-hmm. you don't need to get something on the table asap uh, because you have the red one drops to do that. Right. So that's awesome. Now shadow is kind of a closer instead of like your primary threat. So I do think that's the one card that kind of touches on all the different archetypes. I think we should, we'll, we'll double back on um, Merktide and Ranger captain in a little bit, but while we're here, why don't we talk a little bit more about um, the kind of list that you've called the stock GDA GDS list and, kind of get into what's going on with the build that you had lately so you know this is the deck that in your article you concluded was the best one it's also basically the deck that you registered for indie this weekend do you still feel like this is a version that you like the best right now or um maybe just kind of top level do you you still feel like you favor this one yeah yeah i i registered the list for my article is the list that i played in a moto ptq the weekend before uh, and it is also the same 75 that I played in Indy. So let's talk about what was in this This that stood out to me, and then love to hear what you if there's anything that I missed as far as really interesting kind of you know twist that you put on this particular version. The first card I wanted to talk about in this, though, is a card that I think some people thought was a meme in, in Death Shadow, but I think Stan and I were both kind of like, not sure that this is a meme. Yeah. Is, and that's Gigantha. So <laughs> I thought it was a meme. 
Um, right. <laughs> a couple of the other shadow guys that I work with, um, you know, Ben Jones and some of the other guys uh, also thought it was a meme. I remember talking to Ben shortly after the, the shadow ban. I'm like, some people are playing Gigantha. And he goes, that has to be a meme, right? And I'm like, I think so. I was like, I'm going to try it, but I don't expect it to be great. Um, but honestly, Gigantha has far and away exceeded expectations. Can we talk about how and why I saw you said that it won you won you a few games in particular, I think was the phrase I saw on your Twitter. Uh, is it just having access to that extra card, essentially, for, for the late game, for what is the late game in Shadow, right? Getting to five mana is kind of the late game in a deck that only has 18 or 19 lands. Or, or is it the fact that it's a five mana mana dork and you finally get to cast white <laughs> and, and green spells? Uh, right. uh, both, actually. <laughs> Uh, there's, there are a few games where I won because it was a five man of five, five when everybody was out of stuff. Um, because that's still just going to close the game relatively quickly if nobody has any resources, but I've actually won a couple of games through blood moon, uh, with Gigantha. No way. That's amazing. Yeah. I had a game on moto, uh, like a week ago now, probably where my opponent had a blood moon. I played my Gigantha and on the following turn, I tapped it for mana and got to cast an expressive iteration and a death shadow. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> and that is the That's scientific great. method. Yeah. It's just like, I, honestly, I, I was going to try it just because Gigantha kind of highlights how good the companion man or mechanic is. This is what I was just going to ask you, Michael, is that that's all that that feels like to me too. Yeah. Because like Luris in a death shadow deck makes a ton of sense. Um, it pays you off for what you already want to be doing. Uh, it's outwardly very powerful. Chiganta just like looks mopey. It's like not on plan, but just having an eighth card matters so much in a lot of prolonged games in modern, which is kind of where shadow needed the help. You know, I mentioned earlier that you had to find a way to go bigger, and Gigantha is one of the easier ways to go bigger. It's true. I mean, I I personally kind of wish that they had banned all the companions. Like we talk, I'm not to open this can of worms because we have other things to talk about today. But it, this is the type of thing that makes me continue to feel like that's probably <laughs> the only outcome that makes sense eventually here because people are just going to put eighth cards in their decks as as often as they can put eighth cards in their in their opening hands. You know, that's that's just what it is. Um, but yeah, it it's one of the most powerful mechanics ever printed and this is more evidence of that i think is totally true truthfully mm -hmm. i would have played mm -hmm. obosh that is like much more on playing than Gigante is but expressive iteration is too good to give up yeah yeah there's just no way there for sure and i'm a huge obosh fan and uh we can talk about that in a little bit because it has made an appearance in mardu death shadow lists of certain constructions so we could we could chat about that a little bit towards the end here um let's talk about the planeswalkers Though I know that there's been a lot of interest in trying to figure out if there is a good Planeswalkers that's in here. I remember a few years back when the Royal Science first came out, you were playing with that. I think you and I talked about it a little bit on the bonus episode that we did about Shadow at the time. But lately, you've been playing with Kaido Shizuki, um, which is a card that is surprisingly similar to Royal Science, right? And I think you mentioned that in your article as well. Can you talk a little bit about the role of a Planeswalker in this deck, which we, we didn't really have space for before? Yeah, it it's another one of those things where I looked at it and I go, how do we go bigger? We need a recurring source of cards. Um, because as we get later into the game, our more efficient cards stop mattering as much. Um, and that gives way to our opponent's more powerful, more expensive cards. Uh, so if we're going to beat those more powerful, more expensive cards, we need to have more efficient cards. So we need to be generating value over the course of multiple turns. 
Um, so one thing that I looked at was playing more Croxes, right? Um, but I think the the blue-white and the four-color decks generate so many cards that discarding one to Croxa every turn is not a huge deal. Also, it's weak to Solitude. Also, it's weak to Rest in Peace, um, which a lot of those bigger decks have access to. So that wasn't going to work. And then I was like, well, what can we do then? Um, and as these decks move toward more of a balance of other March of the Otherworldly Light and Prismatic Ending, rather than being Prismatic Ending dominated, that starts to favor Planeswalkers a little bit. Uh, because the, the key difference between those cards, even though they look very similar, is March can't hit Planeswalkers. Right. Um, so I went, well, what, what Planeswalkers can I reasonably play? And because of Gigantha, I couldn't play Jace, which was originally a card that I had in my sideboard for those matchups. So wait, Jace, the mind sculptor, like the mind sculptor. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's um, the solitude decks really struggle to beat that card. Um, so fury is actually not super good against shadow post boards. So I think a lot of those decks tend to cut those or at least trim on them. Uh, I'm also boarding up to four dress downs in that matchup too. And if you're concerned about fury, you can just plus uh, plus Jace on the first turn. So there's enough ways to mitigate uh, mitigate Fury as a and as, as an answer to Jace. I also, but I can't believe the world that you're telling us we live in here for a second. Just to, as an aside, that Gigantha is the benefits of Gigantha outweighs the benefits of having Jace the Mind Sculptor in your sideboard. What do you think, Patrick Chapin would think about that? <laughs> oh, you you'd probably be very <laughs> upset with me. That's uh, funny. But I mean, when it comes down to it, Gigantha theoretically affects all of your matchups. Um, Jace just doesn't. Um, so at the end of the day, I think having access to Gigantha is probably more important than having access to the one Jace that was in my sideboard. Yeah. Um, but that led me down to the, the Planeswalkers that I was considering, which are the Royal Scions and Kaido. I also considered Spyro, uh, Season Pyromancer, but again, because of Gigantha, mm-hmm. you can't play that. Right. Um, and when you look at those cards, like you said, they, they look very similar and they, they kind of are, um, they both loot Kaido draws a card sometimes, uh, the Royal Scion's second plus one to give plus two plus oh for a second trample is more in line with Shadow's plan. Especially with if you have a monkey on the board, that seems like a great target for the second plus on Scions. Yeah, I mean, only realistically, the only creature in the deck that isn't like very good with Royal Scion's uh, combat-related ability is Dragon's Rage Channeler. Um, because like Croxa and Death Shadow are big enough that having trample is very good. Giving Ragavan first strike lets it attack and do a lot of stuff. Um, and even triple over things to get its get its trigger. Yep. But in a lot of those matchups against like the solitude decks and the other grindy decks, you can't guarantee that you're going to have a creature in play uh, when you're playing this planeswalker because so many of them are so loaded with interaction. So when I looked at it, I came to the conclusion that the Royal Scions is better when you have stuff already, uh, and Kaido is better when neither player has stuff, uh, just because. Kaido has this play pattern where if nobody has anything, you play it, you make a 1-1, and then Kaido phases out so they can't deal with it that turn, or at least it's hard for them to deal with it that turn. And then you just have a personal Howling Mine going forward. Uh, So in a game of very low resources, having a personal Howling Mine is very strong uh, compared to only being able to loot every turn. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering if that was the difference and how... Do you feel like that exact scenario comes up a a lot where you're kind of like Kaido's the last card that you play where it's the end end of, you know, after everybody's traded all their resources and you're like, all right, this is how I'm restarting the second phase of this game, basically. 
Yeah, that comes up in like the shadow mirrors all the time. Honestly, I played on turn three against four color and blue white reasonably often because you can play like a turn one creature, whether it's Dragon's Ridge Channeler or uh, Ragavan, and they almost always have to kill it on the spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's a few times where they didn't kill my Ragavan right away, and I just got to play Kaido on turn two and just start drawing cards every turn. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> That's a nightmare. Right, because then you're getting their cards and you're getting your card. Yeah, you just like run away at the game very quickly in those scenarios. And, yeah. and um, they're gonna, your opponents are probably going to assume that Ragavan is the problem there, but really it's the fact that you have a three-mana walker that just buries your opponent and card advantage, essentially. Yeah, and they have to deal with it eventually. Like The, the ultimate on Kaido is not super impressive, but it's not nothing. Uh, eventually, it's just going to start putting Death Shadows into play over and over. Which, which is hilarious. be a problem you- for them. <laughs> Yeah, have you done that? Have you have you altered that where it, it mattered before? Um, I have. I've been able to, but I haven't. Ah, like I had a Kaido on like eight or nine this weekend against four color. Um, but it was better to just keep drawing cards. We've talked about four color a lot. You you've brought up solitude a number of times. I, I just want to take a very quick aside. Is solitude lights out against death shadow just not only because it's a removal spell but it also gains you a ton of life or do your cheaper threats and some of your alternative cards kind of help solve that problem or is that where dress down becomes really critical too so that dress down helps in that scenario quite a lot and i think that is part of the reason why towards the end of the time period that Luris was legal that shadow was considered the best deck and not murktide because shadow got to leverage dress down so much more effectively because it played on plan instead of just being a card that you had to play in your deck to deal with solitude um i think solitude is lights out if you don't respect it uh which is why you have to have you know a number of discard spells and a number of dress downs and one one other card that i think is incredibly important right now is torok dread cantor yeah that was the next card on my list actually so let's talk about it for a little bit yeah, so going into the weekend before Indianapolis, when I played in the Moto Super PTQ, I knew that I wanted four copies of Dressdown and three Torox in my 75. Because as we talked about earlier, I think it is reasonable for many people to move to four color after the Luris ban, because that was one of the big winners um, without Luris. Because nothing in that deck got banned, it was already a strong contender. Uh, and now without another one of the strong contenders, there's like this power vacuum. And I think that uh, it is natural for people to head there. Uh, And that matchup is not as bad as it would seem. Um, I think a lot of people make it out to be this horrible matchup for Shadow. But in reality, I think it is closer to 45-ish percent. Uh, But you have to respect it. And that that is what having four dress downs and three Torox does. Uh, Because Torox is, uh, frankly, pretty close to lights out against that matchup. Uh, Yeah. They have so few ways to interact with it once it's in play, and it hits them for two cards. Um, it, it's kind of just everything I want in that matchup. Yeah, I think that's one of those cards that's just really, really good in a few really select matchups that are really important to shore up for all of these kind of, you know, it's really good when you play Rakdos or John, do you need access to that card against that matchup? Same thing here. I kind of feel like Torak is one of those cards that's just a little bit underappreciated still. At this point, is a piece of tech against a lot of decks that are really good. Yeah, so part of the reason that these Solitude decks are so good is because they can be incredibly mana efficient with the pitch costing of Solitude and Fury. Um, they can play a spell and evoke one of the elementals in the same turn, but that often puts them down on cards. So once they're down on cards from doing things like evoking Solitude or Fury, and you then him to Torak them, they're often left with very little. Right. And then you're kind of like, let's go. Yeah, you have a 4-3 that they can't kill outside of 
the Fury or maybe the Errant Lightning Bolt. Um, and even then, you have Dress Down to stop a Fury. Right. I was uh, so we talked about this a little bit last week, and I shouldn't have been surprised by by this, but I was a, not surprised. But I it just Dress Down being good enough to be around without Luris was a little bit of a like, wow, that card just is very very good, and it was very under the radar on that Modern Horizons 2 spoiler when that list came out. I just think that um, that card has been a kind of a fundamental change to a bunch of different decks, too. And I even saw it in those Legacy lists, which was fascinating as well, that people are, are starting to find space for it in that format as well. Yeah, I honestly, I think that Dress Down is likely a top 10 card from Modern Horizons 2, but I think you're right. When that spoiler came out nobody was talking about that card almost at all yeah the only reason we talked about the card when we did the spoiler was we were like this is a permanent that says draw a card on it and it's cheap and we were like that's almost enough to really keep it keep your eyes on it just for that reason and then we'll see where it goes michael do you recall when dress down became a shadow card um honestly i think aspiring spike was the first person that I saw to discover that card and put it in shadow. Um, so kudos to him or wherever he saw the idea. I don't know, you know, if it was something suggested by a reviewer or if he came up with it organically. Um, so whoever figured that out was, you know, really onto something. And likewise, then, do you think that dress down is so critical now as both an offensive and defensive tool against like constructs and? pitch elementals countless other cards right do you think it's so critical now that any version of blue shadow is lightly going to run that over battle rage like is that just kind of an easy upgrade contemporary modern yeah i think so um at least in the course of the current modern landscape i think the answer is yes uh if you go back to 2019 2018 or whatever you saw decks like humans and various other decks that had 25 or 30 creatures in them and getting your shadow through in those matchups was hard um so you actually did need team or battle rage to finish a lot of games uh to get through blockers because you just couldn't kill enough things that's not true anymore you see decks with 12 14 16 creatures now uh and like that's a lot of creatures yeah Uh, so it's It's because everybody's got to fit four expressive iteration and four prismatic endings yeah exactly (laughs) three march of otherworldly lights and all their and all their decks now yeah so now it's like very easy to clear the board with removal spells to be able to attack for damage that you don't need a card that is just there to deal damage anymore. Um, Similarly, I think that uh, Dress Down does a pretty close team or battle rage impression when your opponent's not blocking. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the utility of it, honestly, I I keep playing with the card and I keep finding new things that it does, Uh, which is just not something that you could ever do with battle rage uh and it's never dead right like you said it's a cheap permanent that draws a card uh it also turn helps turn on delirium for uh unholy heat and dragon's ridge channeler Mm -hmm. um it kills constructs like you said um it it just does so much that battle rage could never do it shuts off magis of the moon which is becoming a little (laughs) bit more popular now too yep um, yeah, it just does so much that I think going forward, if modern continues to look remotely the same, that uh, these blue shadow decks will not only have three to four copies, but it is one of the primary reasons to be blue in your shadow decks. Yeah, it's that and expressive iteration, right? And drown, I guess, are the main the main thing. So there, it, it, the blue pips start to add up pretty quick once you put one in. It's like, oh, and then we get to play this card, and then we're going to play this card. But 
Um, that was one of the biggest bummers from when I used to play Grixis Death Shadow a lot with Team or Battle Rage was like drawing it at the wrong time. It's like, I can't do anything with this card. It's dead right now. I have to wait for the right time to use it. You know, you and I talked previously about how almost having Battle Rage in your deck, it was a more important threat than sometimes actually having it in your hand. You know, like you sort of had to represent that you had it to people to be able so that they respect uh, not taking damage off of a uh, off of a shadow really easily and um this is just a whole different thing now where you can um you can use it offensively you can use it defensively it's got more utility i will say it's a lot harder card to play than <laughs> than that plan was and i think a lot of in, in some aspects i think that this version of of death shadow is pretty difficult to play because of all the optionality that you had like you said at the beginning of when we started talking about this there's a lot of agency with the with this, this shadow list and most shadow lists and that's only increased over time as we have cards with powerful modes more often cards that have different edge cases and understanding the rules to be able to make them good and that's all good for the deck but i do think it's made it more complex to be a pilot of the deck for sure yeah it it kind of cuts both ways to be honest i was thinking about this uh, a couple of weeks ago uh especially with luris i think that the shadow deck was very hard to play uh perfectly because luris in specific gave you so many options every game uh and that's something that i've had a lot of people approach me with um in discord or whatever they'll be like i can't seem to win with this shadow deck but i played the old shadow deck for a long time like the it just doesn't make sense to me uh but there's so many more moving pieces. Uh, Loris, Ragavan, all the surveils from Dragon's Rage Channeler, uh, Dress Down, all add so many different decision points to the game, which is something I love. Um, but it's interesting because it also seems easier sometimes because your cards are just better. Mm -hmm. Right. Like part of the reason that the old Shadow decks were seen as hard to play is because a bunch of your cards were just bad. Right, you, you know, you had cards like Thought Scour in your deck. Yeah, and it's like, what if I, what if I have an opening seven that's Bauble, Thought Scour, and Street Wraith? Like, am I, am I keeping all these cantrips? Do I actually want to do this, or like, what if I have no action and all cantrips? Like, what am I doing here? So that, yeah, as you get that air out of, out of there, somewhat, you have more cards that do things, and so I guess it does feel like you're more prepared for a plan. Yeah, um, and I think. Even now, there's hands that I draw where I'm just like, I have Ragavan, Thoughtseize, Bobble, you know, other cards, and I have to sit there and think about whether I want to play Ragavan or Thoughtseize on one. This is a question we've talked about on here before, too. Stan, go ahead. Game one, you're on the play in the blind. What do you do? Like, I'm inclined to think you go with Ragavan just because that's the most snowball-y card. It's a must answer threat. You're going to trade one for one anyway if they can remove it. Do you have any kind of heuristics I, I, you can even throw drc into that mix because that kind of can change the calculus as well one thing that i do like about companions is they give off a lot of what your opponent is doing right um so that's always my question when somebody says do you keep this hand in game one in the dark is did they show me a companion yeah um because there are companions like uh like kahira for example i am more than happy to lead off on ragavan because i know that they can't kill ragavan reliably on turn one uh, and it will start to run away with the game in those matchups. Uh, but if my opponent showed me Luris, for example, uh, I would often play my discard spell on one unless I had two Ragavans. Um, similarly, I think that uh, hands with like two discard spells and a Dragon's Rage Channeler, I'll often lead on discard spell and then go Dragon's Rage Channeler second discard spell. 
Uh, because especially if my Dragon Rage Channeler is my only creature, like it is important to protect that. So closing out on the stock list here, you know, you said that you still like this list a lot after Indianapolis. What, what, are, you, what are you thinking about after what you just kind of played against in modern, what you might do to tweak this list? Or are you, are you thinking about just taking this one back out pretty much the way that it is right now? So the deck as a whole felt powerful. It felt cohesive. Like I was doing the things that I wanted to do. Uh, my matchups could have been better <laughs> for sure. Um, I think that so against the the Solitude to Fairy decks, which I played ten rounds of, uh, I went six and four, which I think is probably pretty good for Shadow. Yeah, slightly above expectation in those matchups in a normal tournament. Um, if you told me I could be sixty percent in those matchups over a normal tournament, I would take it. Um, because then if you start to run hot, then you're maybe 70% in those matchups and you go, you know, two and one against them or whatever. Um, and then you're in a pretty good position if you're doing well in, against your other matchups. Um, however, 60% in those matchups, uh, when they're the only thing you play is, uh, a little less good. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I have some things coming down the pipeline that I want to work on. Um, you know, I've been toying around with the idea of like, one or two main deck spell pierces uh, to try to help with the the white decks and the increase that I expect to see in Cascade decks. Um, I think that Agadim's Awakening is an interesting angle um, to, mm-hmm. to maybe go back to now that we don't have Luris, uh, which is just yeah. something that you didn't need when you had Luris. Um, so that, that's something I want to check out. Uh, maybe some main deck Torox. Why? Why awakening? Yeah. Like, why not just run an Earth? It, I feel like when all of your threats are basically one mana, is it just for the chance to get back a Croxa and a one drop, or something else going on there? Um, it's easier to fit. So, Unearth is generally more powerful in a vacuum because it is cheap. Uh, one point in Aedim's Awakening is that it is also a land that fuels your shadow. Yeah, so you can kind of fit it into the deck a little easier. Uh, because you can just cut another one of your lands for it. Uh, but yeah, I think Unearth is going to accomplish a similar goal in a lot of different cases. All right. Why don't we go on and talk about Murktide and kind of where your thoughts were there? Because you know, some people have had some, some success with it. In particular, Ari Zaks won a modern Super PTQ on March 13th with a list that was pretty close to the list that you had posted in your article Um and that just has um, Murktide in it. What do you think is going on with this deck? Why have you kind of felt like maybe this isn't the one that you like as much? You know, the main difference here is there's four Murktides, of course, and then generally there's three to four considers in these lists. And in exchange, you know, they, they still don't have any Street Wraiths. They tend to not be able to fit things like Dress Down in the main deck uh, in favor of Murktides and other cantrips instead. So I think Murktide uh, lets you be more aggressive because Murktide is large and hard to answer and evasive. So the downside is that is it asks a lot of your mana being blue-blue. Can't play Gigantha for one thing. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, Murktide is one of the cards that I'd be willing to give up Gigantha for if I could find a way to make it work the way I want it to. Um, but it just feels so much less fluid when you have to... Because uh, like the Shadow decks really want to get Blood Crypt on turn one basically every game. So having Blood Crypt on turn one doesn't let you cast Murktide on two lands, and you spend a surprising amount of games on two to three lands. Um, so it can be tricky to cast Murktide and all of your other spells efficiently. One of the reasons that I ended up moving Street Wraith out of these decks when I was testing them is you look at it and you go, oh, it's a free spell, it goes to the graveyard, it helps delve. <laughs> 
But unlike Gurmag Angler, Murktide cares about what you delve. Uh, so having a street race in the graveyard often doesn't mean a ton um, for the purposes of Murktide. So it just ended up, you, you couldn't get enough of the instants and sorceries into the deck that you wanted to get into the deck if you use those spots on Street Wraith. It seems to me like it's a point toward Unholy Heat DRC, though, where in some of these decks, when you're threat light, it can be hard to get a creature in the yard. But I guess Murktide would be more important, though. Like, if that's kind of the main concession you're building your deck around, you, you want to make sure your Murktide's as big as possible versus just activating Delirium. Yeah, and there's kind of a balance that goes into that, because that was one of my initial points to playing Street Wraith is it helps turn those cards on and Dragon's Rage Channeler helps turn on your Merc Tides and there's like an interesting balance going on there because obviously you don't want your Dragon's Rage Channelers to be 1-1s all the time just to help fuel the Merc Tides because then you're kind of wasting those spots too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it just, Merc Tide also made it so it was tricky to play main deck dress downs and I think without main deck dress downs, uh, Merc Tide Regent in specific is like very vulnerable to Solitude, which you know, as we talked about before, isn't the end-all be-all, but if you're playing a card like Murktide Regent, which asks you to do a lot to make it good, having it solitude is kind of a big deal. Yeah, I think one thing that strikes me about these lists, too, when you talk about dress down not being able to get in main, you also aren't able to to fit in a value engine like Kaido or something like that in it, in the list that have Murktide. It feels to me like, in a weird way, this version is, like you said, it's more aggressive, but it's also kind of like a strangely more linear plan for for a deck that's like this where you maybe don't have as much play as you are used to with kind of your utility pieces that you have space for in the more stock list does that make sense yeah you lose a lot of those utility cards in favor of playing like consider which you know isn't a card that we would be interested in playing normally but you kind of have to if you want to try to make Merktide good so you lose a little bit of longevity for a little bit of aggressiveness, but also your deck just has some air in it because you have considers and you know similar cards. What do you think it would take for for this deck? Is it, do you think it's meta dependent that this deck, like w- how you would favor one deck versus the other, or do you think that you're probably going to stick with closer to something to stock for a while and not look back at Murktide anytime soon? I think it would take a lot for Murktide to be better than the version that I'm playing. Uh, because it is worse against Hammer and worse against Four Color, uh, and those are two of the matchups that I really want to be ready for. Uh, that being said, it's probably better against Murktide, and it is, <coughs> you know, probably a little bit better in like the Shadow Mirrors. But those aren't the places that I think the Shadow decks need help right now. Stan, you played this deck some this week, right? But what did you think you were? Yeah, think about so it? Mike, for for background, I actually have a fair amount of experience playing. Just is it Murktide? And yep. I was excited to see the the shadow version of that deck, essentially. And I, it was really hard for me to kind of just adjust my brain to playing with hand disruption spells where I'm used to playing counter magic. Because I think that's basically the primary trade-off that, that's, that's happening here. Um, and as a result, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm just not as practiced in shadow as I think it takes to pick up a new version of the deck and 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 find your role in matchups and, and pilot it with some proficiency. I did feel though that if Murktide Shadow continues to be a thing, that is another point of tension that can make piloting it actually kind of hard, where you know you want your hand disruption to clear the way for your cheap threats, you want things like thought ceases to make your shadows a little bigger. And they do help fuel the Murktide too, but the blue, blue, and Murktide, I think, contributes really nicely to being being able to play a counterspell or even an Archmage's charm. And 
don't know, that just felt like a, trying to stick a, a peg into the wrong hole. And maybe it doesn't have to be a three-color deck at the end of the day. Like maybe it can be just some kind of version of blue-black Merktide Shadow even or, or some other iteration that makes room for um, dress downs too. Yeah, and I have certainly seen the blue-black versions going around. Um, and ultimately, at the end of the day, I was trying to fit as much testing in as I possibly could before Indy. Um, so between the lower span and Indy, I had uh, roughly two weeks. Um, right. So I mean, you killed those PTQs, though. I mean, I know you didn't top eight either one, but you came in, what, ninth and tenth in those two different PTQs that you took Shadow to in the weekend in between? That's super impressive, too. Uh, the ninth place one was actually a, a sealed PTQ. Um, oh, okay. The 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 tenth place one was Shadow, and I, yeah, I ended up missing on tiebreakers. Um, but that was, honestly, that was a deck that me and... Uh, Zach ended up building at like one thirty in the morning the day of the PTQ or something after playing like twelve rounds of sealed. Um, wow! So <laughs> you're like you're like we're putting Kaido in. Let's just do it twelve thirty in the morning. Where that's you could be honest if that's where it came from. Uh, well, I mean, we were like go. I was like really debating between the Royal Scions and Kaido, and he was like, you know, honestly, you know what the Royal Scions does. You've played it before. We don't know what Kaido does. We should just try it. Uh, and I was like, yeah, you know, 10-round PTQ on Moto maybe isn't the best place to do it, but it's where I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's where you can do it. I think someone who has the, the amount of reps in that you do can can handle that kind of stuff for sure. But yeah, that, I mean, that's honestly where, where Kaido came from. We were kind of just throwing stuff at the wall to see what worked out. And it just so happened that Kaido was pretty good that day and also pretty good last weekend and you know, continues to be good in those grindy matchups where we want those extra resources, uh, which are, you know, as I previously touched on, where Shadow needs the help. Uh, it doesn't need help at the bottom against, you know, low to the ground aggressive decks or, you know, other tempo decks because it's already the core of the deck is already so good against those strategies um, that realistically it just needs help against the bigger decks. Makes a ton of sense. All right. So, why don't we move on to talking about, let's talk about Ranger Captain of Eos and Mardu Shadow for a quick minute, quick minute, but talk a little bit about kind of the other flavors of Shadow that have floated around in the past really quickly and just kind of maybe why they're not gelling as much right now. Um, but let's start with with Mardu. So the, the big thing that Ranger Captain of Eos does, of course, is that it provides you some resilience against, it gives you a threat. So it gives you a card of value, essentially. It lets you search up a Shadow or if you want to get Dragon's Rage Channel or Ragavan off of off of your Rager Captain, you can do that as well. And then, of course, it has the Sacrifice Trigger that's good against Spells decks. That, I think, is a good synergy, of course, between a deck full of, full of one-drops. You put together a list, you know, Everett, we were talking about Inspiring Spike, this deck a few times the last few weeks, that he had a 5-0 with a Mardu list as well, an Obosh Mardu list. Um, what were your thoughts about this deck that um i think a lot of us had fun with you know two three years ago in the hex parasite era as well yeah so the the reason that i looked at mardu originally and ranger captain originally is now you have good non-shadow one drops to get um you can get dragon's red channeler and you can get ragavan you're not just stuck getting hex parasite uh when you don't want to get a death shadow or when you can't play a death shadow um so ranger captain does get better in that regard um Ranger Captain also very very good against the Cascade decks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yikes! <laughs> it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a giant stop sign. Yeah. Yeah. You're just like, all right, cast your Violet Outburst. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and a lot of those decks, frankly, aren't very good at killing a 3-3. So I do think Ranger Captain is like good in those regards. But specifically the version that I played um, when I built Mardu Shadow didn't have Obosh. Uh, because I thought the two mana spells were just too important to give up. Um, mainly being Torok and Terminate and Kroxa. Uh, and Terminate's kind of a weird one, but I think you need it to have a, any sort of a respectable Murktide matchup uh, because the the white removal isn't doing you any favors there. Mm-hmm. Um, and similar to the point I was touching on earlier with Torok against uh, the Solitude decks, I think you kind of need to have Torok in your Shadow decks at the moment to be able to hang with those decks too. Uh, so giving up those cards uh, and Crocs is good in like the the Black Mirrors. Um, anyone that's trying to grind without Solitude. Uh, so like giving up all those cards for Obosh just didn't seem worth it to me. Yeah, especially when it doesn't come up super often. You know the the Mardu list. Your Mardu list has one more land, but it's still nineteen lands. You know, so it, it takes work. Even when you draw a lot of cards or something like that, it takes work to get up to five lands to be able to cast Obosh. So I can I can understand that for sure. Yeah. Um, ultimately, it just didn't uh, it just didn't feel as strong as Grixis. It didn't feel as smooth. Uh, and I think by and large that is not having expressive iteration and not having uh, dress down to help protect things, uh, which are, like I said, the the two primary reasons to, to play blue in your shadow decks right now. Um, so missing those components when you're trying to play Mardu instead, um, the white cards just didn't end up being better than the blue cards. Why were you running Street Wraith here when you cut it elsewhere? So I think that going forward, I would look at cutting Street Wraith in that deck. Uh, it made the initial versions as kind of a a way to make shadow better because you didn't have good ways to go long per se. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was the, okay, we can try to go fast by playing street wraith to make our shadows better because we have higher access to shadow because of ranger captain. Um, And additionally, you don't have the card advantage abilities uh, of dress down and um, expressive iteration to, help turn on delirium or find the cards to turn on delirium uh so having an extra creature uh, helps in those regards and then you know you talked about a little bit earlier so john's shadow used to be a favorite of a lot of people you know definitely that super aggro version we're not even looking at that right now mostly because the biggest pay you mentioned it earlier but you think the main payoff of even playing a john version like that is become a ment plus team or battle rage and it's too risky right now is that is that the thinking yeah and it's uh, that is one of the things, uh, and it's too risky for a lot of reasons. Uh, Solitude being a big one, um, which you know is a recurring theme. But I think being having a solid plan against Solitude right now is very important. But similar to what we were talking about earlier, Unholy Heat just kind of does a lot of yeah. work against the the cards that you'd be putting in that deck. So investing something like a become a man's and a team or battle rage into a combat step and then having your creature killed by like march of the otherworldly light or unholy heat uh is very dangerous without good ways to protect it yeah and certainly that diminishes even you know another thing that that deck used to be really good about was having that consistent two mana threat that was on another axis in tarmogoyf right and it's sort of like maybe we don't even we're not really at a at a loss for threats right now we could go with murktide if we really wanted to we can go with you know just with the deck 
like the the Grixis ones that only has 12 creatures in it. And that's fine because Dragon's Rage Channeler and Ragavan do so much work on their own that maybe it's not even worth splashing into that two mana zone. Um, so some of the things that made that deck good before just maybe don't really exist as far as meta conditions go right now. Yeah, and I, I've had a lot of people uh, in the last two weeks approach me about playing like a Jun Traverse build. And yep. I don't think Traverse... The, the the shadow decks just don't need traverse anymore like they just have yep. enough good threats to play thanks to the red one drops um that you just don't need the consistency that traverse brings up at the cost of you know a a slot in your deck um that has a real fail case sometimes when you can't get delirium that card's just not very good yeah absolutely um, it's terrible <laughs> so having that risk for uh, to try to fix a problem that you just don't really have anymore isn't needed. Um, but the other version of the deck that I was looking the other version of Jun that I was looking at was the like six to eight two drops version with Tarmogoyf and Scourge of the Skyclaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Scourge also um, is pretty bad into Solitude. Yeah, <laughs> even worse yeah. in some ways. R.I.P. Uh, I loved that deck for the minute that it was good. The like the eight shadow deck with that and uh, that and regular shadow. Oh for yeah, sure. there's but, few better feelings than killing somebody from like fifteen with uh, scourge plus TBR. Yeah, that was like the most insane <laughs> timing. The way all that stuff worked out was so so wild. Um, but RIP scourge. Maybe, maybe we see you someday in the future. Yeah, hopefully wizards. Uh... We'll lay off the the solitude like cards for a little bit. <laughs> when I uh, when Modern Horizons two is getting spoiled, my buddy was just like, "Oh, you just have to dodge swords to play shares and you'll be good." And then they spoiled solitude. And I'm like, "It's somehow worse." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's one mana or it's zero mana. I, I, yeah. I have to it's, just imagine it's not just Alto too, but Dressdown seemed pretty bad against that, right? Yeah, Dressdown just kills Scourge. It makes yeah. uh, Tarmogoyf an O one. There's a lot of stuff going around going around that kind of makes the two drops kind of uh, sketchy. Which is sad. I know there's a lot of people who are fans of that deck, but when you really look at it and analyze the different pieces like you guys are talking about, I think it becomes clear like why why that's not a great option at the moment. Yeah, and it's something that I revisit every time there's like a shift just to just to see. Uh, but it hasn't I don't think it's been right in some time. Which, you know, unfortunate. I kinda like that deck too, but you know, we got to kill your darling sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> what we should really yeah. bring back is Oko. Do the four color Oko shadow. <laughs> Why is no one uh, talking yeah. about Oko anymore? You know, honestly, <laughs> I I think I beat more Okos than I ever did Uros. Yeah, which is kind of a, a crazy sentence, but it kind of goes to show you how good Oko is when Death Shadow is putting Oko in their deck. Yeah, we I remember talking about that at the time and being like, Death Shadow wasn't even a good Oko deck, but you had to do it. At the time, it's the only deck that I ever played. It got a chance to play Oko in before it was banned on that tiny window. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You put the food factory in your deck that wants to hurt itself, and you're just like, ah, this looks weird. But Oko's too messed up to not play. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much with for uh, for taking us through all your all your thoughts here. Again, everybody, check out Michael's articles on uh, Card Kingdom's blog and follow him on Twitter. At uh, Rapacious One on Twitter, if you don't know how to find him. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to let people know that you're up to these days, Michael? Um, so, most of my work is on Twitter. Um, very briefly, I believe in a very public testing process. So, uh, all of my 
iterations of the deck that I'm considering playing, what I end up playing, uh, all usually ends up on my Twitter. But another place you can find it is in my Discord. Um, I run like a pretty shadow focused Discord. You know, we talk about modern as a whole as well, but there's a pretty heavy focus on shadow. Um, so if you're not in there, um, we can leave a link to it in the show notes or something. Yep, gladly we'll add it. And yeah, it's everything's free. Um, all my work gets posted in there. There's a community that's you know getting getting larger by the day of people that are all trying to figure out shadow and you know everyone's talking about different variants. You know, there's always somebody talking about Jund or Mardu or Blue Black or Grixis or whatever have you. Um, so it is often where I point people if they want to get my perspective and other people's perspectives on the deck. Are you planning to to go to Dallas or do you have any other paper tournaments on your horizon where someone might even get to meet you? Uh, I'm considering going to Dallas. I'm not sure yet. Um, I know I'll be in Pittsburgh for the team sealed one. Great format team sealed. Yeah, I do like it. Um, It is. That is the only large tournament that I have left on the horizon until, you know, SCG or some other tournament organizer uh, announces more stuff because they tend to do these things in batches. It seems. Mm hmm. So we'll we'll see how that goes. I'm certainly always looking to travel for uh, for magic tournaments whenever I can. So if you ever see me at something, you know, feel free to come up, say hello. I know I had a couple people in Indy do it. Um, always happy to talk. Well, thank you so much for your time again, and uh, we look forward to to having you on again in the future. Yeah, thank you guys so much. I'm certainly happy to to be back whenever you have me. Can't wait to take you up on that. But until then, that does wrap up this week's show. If this is your first time listening to The Dive Down, and maybe you just haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to our podcast or just reach out in general, you can tweet us at The Dive Down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. You can also support the show via Patreon. Find us over at patreon.com slash thedivedown. Shout out to Manitraders for sponsoring the Dive Down. If you sign up for Manitraders using promo code the Dive Down 2022, all one word, you'll get 15% off your first two months of renting Magic Online cards. You can also use the promo code the Dive Down 2022 over at Barrister and Man and get 15% off your first order. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and cast more shadows